Psalm 106, and a great passage of Scripture. There's three psalms together here, Psalm 105, 106, and 107, that sort of fit together. And the 106th psalm is really a record of how God dealt with Israel. And uh, no matter how many times you read the psalms, and I know, like you, we read them often uh, throughout the year, but it's true about any passage of the Bible. No matter how many times you read it, uh, there's always, it always has something to say. And uh, sometimes it's because you see something you haven't seen before. I've heard that testimony so many times from people. I've read that and read that, and then all of a sudden, you know, I was reading it, and it just really, I saw something I'd never seen before. I think sometimes it has to do with where we are in life and what we're going through and something we need at that time. And so even though you may read a passage and think about it, study about it, it never gets old. And I, I have a great love for this particular uh, psalm. And so we're going to look at it together, Psalm 106. Let's stand together, please. And I'm going to begin at the end and then go back to the beginning. I'm going to read the last two verses of Psalm 106, verse 47 and verse 48. If you looked at it in your Bible, Psalm 106, verse 47. Save us. O Lord our God, that will be the title of the Bible study tonight, Save Us, O Lord our God. Could I just remind us tonight that the Psalms were poems and literature that were written for worship, for song. And we don't have the melody, we don't have the way that the Jewish, the people, the Hebrew people would sing these songs, but they were... It, you could, I can see this I, in my mind's eye. I can visualize this in a setting in a, in a synagogue in the New Testament, but the Old Testament gatherings of God's people singing these divinely inspired songs. And so as they're singing, verse 47, they're singing this to God. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen. And notice the purpose, the intent. To give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. Those two things together, giving thanks and praising the Lord. Then verse 48, blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting and let all the people say amen. Have you ever heard anybody in church say that and let all the people say that you know why they say this? Because in the Bible, let all the people say, "Amen." So we're not going to move on until all the people say, amen. "Yeah." You don't want to be here all night. And then he concludes with this wonderful phrase in the Hebrew, "Hallelujah," in the English, "Praise ye the Lord." Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this evening, and I pray that in the time that we have to study together, that Father would appreciate the inspiration of scripture would appreciate the preservation of the word of God that we have it before us that we could appreciate the fact that we can study what was often sung among the Old Testament people but Lord more than that that we can appreciate what it teaches us about God and about ourselves about your mercy and your love. And so I pray that you'd bless our time in the Word of God tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
One of the things that we'll see in a moment is this is a psalm that sort of recounts, reviews, summarizes uh, several things about God's people. And it's an interesting mix because in this we have, we have God's, God getting praise, God getting honor and glory, but we also have a record of how frequently these people will rebel against God. Included in this, we'll see a, a confession of sin. And I, I see it as though uh, the psalm writer, the songwriter is encouraging in the assembly. This is a song to be sung in the assembly. And that in the assembly, people are being encouraged to praise the Lord and to thank the Lord, but they're also being encouraged to confess their sin, to repent of their sin and to plea for God's mercy. In the first verse, Psalm 106 in verse 1, the Bible says, Praise ye the Lord. By the way, if you look in pray, the first part of the first verse is, Praise ye the Lord. The last part of Psalm 105 says, Praise ye the Lord. And the last verse, the last words of Psalm 106 are, Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord, verse 1. O give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy, which I believe is a one of the primary themes of the song. His the song, His mercy endureth forever. And then He says in verse two, Who, who is able to, who is capable of, who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all His praise? So it begins with this assembled people being encouraged to praise the Lord and to thank the Lord. It's a public proclamation of praise and thanks and to give God glory. And um, I think a lot is revealed, a lot is revealed about us and to us in the way that we worship God, in the way that we praise the Lord. I know that may seem unusual, but I think, I think it's more revealing than a lot of things. You know, I'm for, I'm 100% for standards of separation and commitment. But a person can carry the right Bible and dress modestly and refrain from questionable entertainment and not be in a good place spiritually. Because... You can make robots quote the King James Bible. And I'm not against those things, but I'll tell you how you can really find out something about yourself is how much time do I spend praising the Lord and truly worshiping God. Not just singing the words. You can sing the words of a song and not be worshiping God. From your heart, giving God thanks. From your heart, giving God praise. And so I think it's very important what the psalmist is encouraging people to do. He's encouraging them to give thanks. He's encouraging them to give praise because, as he said in verse 1, He is good. God is good. He is good. And as verse 1 says, His mercy endureth forever. So, and, and so this is a, an exhortation to praise 
And then he says in verse two, who can show forth all his praise and who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? It's also sort of a, a commemoration of God's mighty deeds. Now, anybody that's saved ought to be thankful for God's mighty deeds. Because if you're saved, that is a mighty deed. Not a mighty deed that you've done, but a mighty thing that God has done in you. We ought to be thankful for what God has done. What God has done in our hearts. What God has done in our families. What God has done in our ministries. And, and if it wasn't for the, listen, if it wasn't for the goodness of God, we wouldn't be here tonight. I'm the, I mean, the only reason we're here is because God is good. Amen. And so this, these acts of God call for the praise of those who know him. And then, having said that, and I'm not going to read this entire um, chapter, but I'm going to look at a number of the verses without a lot of exposition. But then the, then the psalmist, after he says that about praise the Lord, thank him for all he's done, then he sort of leads the singers down this memory lane, if you would, and notice some of the things he says to them. Look in verse 7, for instance. He said, our fathers, our fathers, those that preceded us, our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Uh, if you have a Bible with center column references there, when it says provoked him, it'll refer you to go to Exodus 14. I want us to do that. Let's go to that. Exodus, we'll come right back to Psalm 105. Now, the psalmist now is going to talk. He, this is the first of numerous times he's going to refer to the misgivings, to the mistakes, to the failures, to the fallings of God's people. In Exodus chapter 14, they are at the Red Sea. And um, God has led them out of Egypt. The Egyptians are pursuing them. Hope you're familiar with the story. In verse 10 it says, and <clears throat> pardon me, Exodus 14, 10, And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Now keep in mind, these people just left Egypt. They've been slaves. They've been in bondage for 400 years. Count them, four centuries. They've been in bondage. And God has left, led them out. And they came out with a high hand, the Bible says. God led them out triumphantly, miraculously, out of Egyptian bondage. And look what they're saying as soon as they get out. Why did you bring us out here, Moses? Were there no graves in Egypt where they could bury us there? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus, in verse 11, to carry us forth out of Egypt? Why did you do this to us? Why did you bring us out here? Verse 12, is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, let us alone? And they did say that. Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Leave us alone. Let us, it's, what you're wanting to do is too difficult. For it had been, look at this, for it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. Now that's what the psalmist in Psalm 106, I'm going to go back there, that's what the psalmist is referring to in verse 7 when he says that they provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. 
These people, these people were perpetual complainers. They were, they were bent on rebellion, on disobedience, on, and, and we, see, we see many records of it. This is the first one the psalmist reminds them of. Think about this. We're singing this song on a, on a day of worship, on the Sabbath day perhaps, but they're singing this song and they're praising God for his goodness and they're thanking him for his mighty acts and then they're remembering their own rebellion. The psalmist encourages them to remember their rebellion. Psalm 106, he goes on and says after verse 9, where uh, he's, in verse 9 it says, He rebuked the Red Sea and it was dried up. In verse 10, he saved them from the hand of them that hated them. And verse 11, the waters covered their enemies. God, God drowned all their enemies. Verse 12, then believed they his words. They sang his praise and they did. They sang in praise and worship to God, the song of Moses. But then look in verse 13. They soon forgot his works. They soon forgot what God had done. They waited not for his counsel. They did not seek God's advice. I wonder how many people that phrase pertains to that are Christians today that don't really look. God has brought them out. God has delivered them. God has saved them. God has miraculously converted them, raised their spirit from the dead. And then it says, I look at it again in verse 13, they soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel. And look in verse 14, they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. They, they wanted something more than manna. They were, they were not happy with the way God is providing for them. And look in verse 15, a, a tremendously powerful verse. Verse 15, and he, God, gave them their request but sent leanness into their soul. He gave them what they wanted. By the way, I think that's happening a lot today. God is giving people what they want, but, it's, but what, what it's doing is costing them spiritually. Their soul, is, their soul is lean, sent leanness to their soul. This was the way the people of Israel Live. They, they knew what they wanted. Verse 16, I'm not going to read about this, but verse 16 was where uh, Moses and they, they challenged, Aaron and them challenged, or, or, or Korah and his camp challenged Moses and said, can't God speak to us? They called it envying here, the psalmist did in verse 16. They envied Moses and it was a rebellion of Korah. In verse 19, they made a calf. This is, they're singing this. Imagine singing this, how good God is and how much we ought to thank God and how we ought to praise God and then just singing about their fathers and how rebellious their fathers were. They built a golden calf and worshipped this golden calf. Verse 23 says that God would have destroyed them had not Moses, his chosen stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath. The only thing that kept God from destroying these people, and they're singing this, the only thing that kept God from destroying them was the intercession of Moses. Verse 32 and 33, let's skip on down a lot further there. This says, They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sake, because they provoked his spirit. This is when Moses... 
because of their bad spirit, because of the spirit of the people, he, and he, and he paid for it, he, he smote the rock instead of speaking to it. Kept him from going into the promised land. Look in verse 34. They didn't destroy the nations that the Lord had commanded them to destroy. Verse 35, they were mingled with the heathen and learned their works. They served their idols in verse 36. I mean, it's a hard, can you see the record? And this is not everything that happened, but this is a lot of what happened. What a, what a sordid tale of disobedience and rebellion and stiff-necked people that God is dealing with. It's amazing. Look in verse 43, it says, How many times did he deliver them? Many times, excuse me, did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. It's hard to watch people being brought low for their iniquity. But look in verse 44, Nevertheless, he, God, regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. And he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. Imagine that. That is so unlike me. If these people, if I was God and these people were my people and they did all this stuff, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I wouldn't be as merciful as God is, would you? I mean, you probably would. You're a nicer guy than I am. I'd be thumping heads, brother. Look what it says. He regarded their affliction. Is that not the mercy of God? When he heard their cry, he remembered for them, in verse 45, his covenant, and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. Repent means he changed his mind. He could have destroyed them. But the thing that would not let him destroy them was God is so merciful. God showed them mercy. I read where Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, in the 1800s says, Since man ceases not to be sinful, it is a great blessing that Jehovah ceases not to be merciful. Now, let's go back now. The psalmist is singing, leading the congregation to sing about the goodness of God and about the mercy of God and about the about the good works of God. And then he just gives this, you know, summary, let's call it, of all the things these people had done against what God wanted. And says, God could have destroyed them, but he did not. Now, let's go back to a couple of verses that we did not read. We skipped over, and that's in verse 4. Psalm 106 and verse 4. Because included in this is a song, in this song is a cry for help. And he says this in verse 4 of Psalm 106, Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. He's fixing to go through this list of all the things that these people did and how God showed them mercy. And then he's going to, in the midst of that, he's saying, Lord, remember me with the same favor that you showed unto your people. Look in verse 4, he says, Oh, visit me with thy salvation. Salvation there is, is not just the saving us from our sins. I'm sure it includes that. But it's God's deliverance. It's God coming through. It's God, it's God doing something. God 
working. Visit me, God. You've, you've, you've forgiven these people. We've seen what you did. Our fathers disobeyed you and disobeyed you and disobeyed you and turned against you. And yet you were merciful to them. And I'm at, we're singing to you and say, visit us with your salvation. It's a request for God to work. You know, God generally does not work where he's not welcome, where he's not invited to work. I've heard people pray today, this morning, hearing people pray for God to work in our hearts today and work in our service today. People often pray that. Let me ask you a question. Answer it in your own mind. Do you want God to work in your life? I mean, do you really want God to work in your life? Do you need for God to work in your life? That's what he's saying. God, we need you to work in our lives. You know, if you look in this psalm, even though much of it is spoken collectively or corporately, there's also personal pronouns. We see them in verse 4, remember me, and then, oh, visit me. May I, may I say to you tonight, for a relationship with God to be real, it has to be personal. It's not just visit us. It's visit me. Help me. I want a relationship with God that is personal, that it is real. Even in a, this was a public assembly. This was a public setting. But even in a public setting, as I said earlier, worship has to be personal. It has to be personal. You can be in a church house. You can be in a, an assembly where songs are being sung and people maybe are singing those songs, but, but you're not necessarily worshiping God. You're like a spectator, an observer. But this is a personal setting. It's a request for God to work. It's, it's an invitation for God to visit. Visit me. It's a cry of a person or a people that are needy. They see that they're needy. It, you know, it's, in a way, it's a sad thing to see people that are needy, isn't it? But there's something that's even more pathetic than seeing people that are needy, and that's seeing people who don't know that they're needy who think they're okay. We're okay. You know, we're in a comfortable building, in a comfortable place. We're with our family. You know, we're okay. But this was a cry for God to work. He continues that theme in verses 5 and following, that I may see, that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. I want to I see... You've been good to your people. I want to see the goodness that you've shown to your people. By the way, whether we recognize that at all times or appreciate it at all times, this is the good life. This is the, this is the best life, the abundant life, a life lived for God. I know some of you young people may not be thoroughly convinced, but this psalmist was admitting that they were, what they were living was not everything it could be. Show us the best Way, <clears throat> Don't be ever satisfied, young person. Don't ever be satisfied with a life without God. Revival's good for us. Revival is best. It's, it's the best life. The very best. The abundant life. And then he says in verse 5, as I read a moment ago, that we can rejoice in the gladness of thy nation. We want, we want to experience the joy, the gladness that you've promised your people. And that brings us to verse 6. Verse 6, 
We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. He goes on. And that's when he begins this, this reciting of all that their fathers did. In verse 7, we're not going to read it again, but it's verse 7. All our, our fathers did not understand what you were doing in Egypt. And so he didn't say... He's about to say, here's all the things that our fathers have done. They built a golden calf. We weren't there, but we know they did it. They complained at the Red Sea and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt? We weren't there, but we know that they did it. They rebelled against Moses. They they provoked his spirit so that he acted in a way that was not according to his normal procedure. He, he was normally a meek man, but he acted that way. And we weren't there, but we, we know. We've, we've seen what our fathers did. But, but this confession is not just confessing our father's sin. He says in verse 6, we have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity and we've done wickedly. They, they even though they didn't deserve it, they experienced the mercy of God. We too have sinned. We've confessed our sin. We've done wickedly. And, and we need that same mercy in our life. We've sinned with our fathers. It was a time of confession. We've looked a bit at the sin of their fathers and it was horrible. It was horrible, but it was not unlike the fact that we sometimes commit iniquity ourselves. We, we do wickedly as ourselves. We neglect God ourselves. And this is the great need right here. I think is honest confession. Not to say Yeah, the world is a mess. Not to say, you know, people need to love God more, but to say, me. I need for God to do something in my life. I want for God to work in my life. You know, when these young people up here singing about how much, you know, they want to love God more, I'm saying, I'm saying I want young people to want to love God more. But I'm also saying I want to love God more. It's not just everybody else that needs for God to work. It's us. We need for God to work in our lives. But it takes sincerity and honesty. Israel knew what it was to have God's blessing. And some people here may not know personally what it is to really have God's blessing in your life. But Israel knew what it was like to have God's blessing and then to turn away from Him. And so look what he says in verse 8. After he's talking about all this, verse 8, he says, even though they'd done this, even though they provoked him at the, at the Red Sea in verse 8, nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. He saved them for his name's sake. Listen, God didn't save them because they deserved it. God didn't save them because they were perfect. God saved them in spite of their failures. I love the verse, of course, that says where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And you know why God did this? Look what it says in verse 8. He did it for His name's sake. He did it for His glory. He did it because of His reputation. Over and over, these people failed, and over and over, God forgave them. May I say to you tonight, it is, it is very um, foolish to, to have a mentality that I'm going to go ahead and sin because I know that God's a forgiving God and God is merciful. That is a very, very foolish way to live. 
We should never tempt God by saying, well, I know God's merciful and I know God's forgiving and I know God will give me a pass. I'll tell you, it's a very, very unwise path to take. But at the same time, I want to say this. God is merciful. When people come to God with a truly repentant heart, genuinely convicted, genuinely contrite, genuinely sorrowful over the fact that they have messed up, that they've gone the wrong direction. God is a merciful God. Let me tell you tonight, God wants to get glory, but God is not glorified out of lives that don't put Him first. God is not glorified when we fail to seek Him and obey Him, when we fail to recognize where we've gone wrong. God wants to help His people. Aren't you glad about that? I mean, God wants to help us. So he says here in verse 4, Oh, visit me with thy salvation. God, I, I need you to visit with me. He talks about all the times that these people, his, his ancestors, his fathers, those that preceded him, all the times that they rebelled and how merciful God was. And then he comes down to verse seven, 47 where we began our journey tonight. And he says, save us. Save us. Oh, Lord, our God, save us. It's a song. Can you imagine being in a congregation of people? Can you imagine being in a congregation of people who are singing about God's love and singing about God's mercy, and then they begin to sing about how wrong their ancestors have been, and yet how merciful God has been to them, and then they begin to sing as a congregation to God. Oh God, save us. Save us. Help us. Work for us. Hear our plea. Hear our cry. We confess our sins to you. Save us. And look what he says in verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. Save us that we might give you thanks and praise. And then we conclude the verse, the the, uh, psalm in this last verse, 48, where he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. You know this, I'm sure, unless you've forgotten it, the word Amen is not just a traditional closing to a prayer. The word Amen actually has a definition, and the word Amen means I agree. When a song is sung and I agree with what the words are, often I'll say amen. That means I agree. That's the truth. I consent to that. And sometimes you'll hear other people say amen. If I were to say the service is going to be over in about 30 seconds, everybody would say amen. But imagine singing this song and all the people saying amen. It was an opportunity For all the people present, wherever this gathering was, wherever this song was sung, is a place for all the people to agree. Can you imagine, can you think about that tonight, young person? To be be hearing this song, to be singing this song together, to be worshiping God together, and universally saying, we agree. We agree. We agree that our fathers were wrong. We agree that in spite of 
their rebellion. God was merciful to them over and over and over again. God was merciful. We agree with that. And we agree too that we have sinned. That we have broken God's law. That we've not been what we should be. We agree with that whole heart. We agree that we want for God to visit us. We agree that we want God to do something in our life. We agree that God has been good. We agree that, that we ought to give universal praise to God for the way He's worked in our life. The truth is, sometimes people sit in churches and hear sermons and never really, in their heart, agree to anything. That may sound critical or negative, but, but it's the reality. God doesn't give us truth just so that we'll know it. He gives us truth that we'll embrace it. That we will agree to it. When I read this, when I read this psalm, it makes me want to cry out to God for help. Remembering that God has been merciful to rebellious people before. God has been forgiving to stiff-necked people before. God has shown grace to people before who's, who've neglected Him, who've even questioned Him, who've even complained to Him. And yet, and I'm not saying we ought to do that, but I'm telling you, God has been merciful. And it makes me want to say to God, Lord, work in my life. I want you to work in my life. As I said earlier, this psalm begins with the word, praise you the Lord, and it ends with Praise you, the Lord, and sandwiched in between these two hallelujahs are all these examples of sad and sinful failures on the part of Israel, but examples of the enduring patience and mercy of God. Praise God for His goodness. Praise God for His mercy. You know what? God deserves to be praised. And God deserves to be thanked. And whether we always realize it or not, we need Him more than we need friends, more than we need the latest fashions, more than we need popularity, more than we need our fun and our leisure. We need God. We need God. And you know what? God wants us to acknowledge that. Let me ask you this. When's the last time, young person, that you said to God, maybe out loud, maybe not out loud, but you said to God, God, I... I need you. I want, to ha- I want you to come and work in my life. I said it earlier, I said it again. God generally does not work where he's not welcome. He doesn't barge his way into people's lives. But I'll tell you what he does, and sometimes it's a very gentle way. He knocks on our heart. He tugs at our heart. You know what he wants us to do? Say, Lord, I need you and I want you in my life. I want you to have your way in my life. I love this psalm for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons I love it out of many is because it's like an, it's, a, it's a challenge. And it's a challenge for individuals within a congregation to say, visit me with thy salvation. We need you. And I want to tell you tonight, that's the, that's the path to true revival. Is to really have a heart. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
Do you want him in your life tonight? I don't, you may be saying, well, preacher, I'm already saved, but you can be saved and not be really seriously seeking the Lord and yielding to God. Wouldn't you like to have God working in your life? You might think, well, what do my friends think? It doesn't matter what your friends think. What matters is what does God think? What does God think?